A little bit about me here. I became a Christian when I was about uh, 14 or 15. So I was in, the, in my mid-teenage years. And so this, this meant, like, when I was growing up, most of my extended family is Catholic. Um, and my family, my in, in, uh, immediate family, we were what we call creasters in terms of we go to church at Christmas and Easter. Creaster. Um, and so most of my, my church experience when I was a kid that I remember were things like being dragged to Christmas Mass whenever we'd go visit Grandma. Um, so I never went to, uh, to VBS or I never went to Bible camp. In fact, my first time that I remember going to Bible camp, I was actually a leader at Bible camp. Now, funny story, I said that during the last service, and unbeknownst to me, my parents were actually watching that service. They currently live in Frankfurt, Germany, and they were watching, they were worshiping alongside us, and they were watching it, and so I got a text from my mother right after the service going, um, you did go to VBS when you were two. Like, oh, cool. I didn't remember that at all. Okay, awesome. <laughs> apparently, when I was two, I went to VBS, and I learned to sing the books of the Bible, and I apparently named my little brother. My little brother's name is Jeremiah, so that makes sense. <laughs> but in any case, I don't remember that at all. But in any case, uh, I did not grow up with those memories of those uh, normal kind of interactions that a lot of people grew up when you were growing up in the, in the Christian uh, faith. So, like, I never grew up watching, like, what's it, Salty, the, the, the Psalter, the hymnal, or the weird Christian cartoons. My wife is nodding her head because she grew up watching that stuff. But, like, I never had that growing up. And so, like, certain songs you would sing, certain things, certain experiences that most church kids think about are just like, oh, yeah, that's just kind of a normal expression of growing up in the church. I didn't have that. And so you need to understand that to understand this story. So this is probably five years ago. Um, we are uh, administering in Council Bluffs at the time. And uh, uh, you have to understand, my kids are awesome. They're here today, so I'm going to embarrass them. Um, my daughter is one of the most creative people in the world, and she has been that creative her entire life. Right now, our house is filled with paintings that she's painted. She's really good, and, uh, and she's very, very creative. But that was also when she was like four or five, she was also creative, and she would make up songs all the time. So I'm sitting watching TV, and in comes my, my five-year-old with this tiny little squeaky voice singing this song. She was Sunday afternoon. She just come from church, and she's singing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Now, to those of you, who, who here knows that song? You grew up in the church. Who here is confused? That's where I was. <laughs> right? So she starts singing this song, and I've never heard it before, so I'm just assuming that she made it up. And I'm like, okay, cool, she's creative. And then she puts in dance motions, like right arm, left arm, Father Abraham. And so I'm like, oh, this is because I'm enjoying the show as a proud papa. Then my son walks in. He would have been about eight at the time. Um, and you've got to know about Toby. He is an awesome caregiver of his little sister. Uh, he really takes care of her. They collaborate a lot together and, and working together. And just amazing, amazing kid. So he starts singing along. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, he picked it up. It's a pretty simple song. He even got the dance moves down. Rock on! <laughs> So I'm watching these kids, Father Abraham, his many sons, they're dancing in unison. And I'm like, I'm impressed. I'm a proud dad at this point. They just, on the fly, wrote this song about the Old Testament, Father Abraham. Rock on. Then my wife came in the room and started singing and dancing along, along with them. 
And I was uh, really weirded out at that moment. I had never heard this song before, and all of a sudden, my wife and two kids are dancing around the room, right arm, left arm, Father Abraham, and and I am really confused. Now, if you're sitting here and going, I have no idea what song you're talking about, think think of my perspective of your entire family doing this in front of you, still having no idea what's going on. I say that story to explain what it's like to be a part of Christian community now not having those experiences as a kid. I had never heard the song Father Abraham, which like every Bible school kid sings now. I had never heard that song until my family started performing it in unison in my living room five years ago. Now I explain that because that's a good way to show the fact that there are some things about Christian community that I just, uh, I, I don't get necessarily, or I get differently. They, it hits different for me. Okay, various things that, that we all just kind of take for granted, things that we say, things that we do, um, verses that we gloss over, or something like that. They, like to me, I'll latch on to those because that, that's new. It's a new idea. I've never heard that before. Um, for example, things like, one of the weirdest things that I hear Christians always say, if you're, if you're uh, going into a dangerous uh, situation, a Christian might pray over you, I pray a hedge of protection over you. I've heard that a hundred times, like, oh, we're praying a hedge of protection around you. And I'm thinking to myself, why do I need bushes of protection? Can I have a wall? I don't want a hedge. I want a wall. But just little things like that, that as someone who didn't grow up in that world, a lot of those details just seem weird. But that's also true for Scripture. Scripture hits different in a lot of ways. Um, and that's actually true for this, the, the verse that we're reading today. When, we, when I first uh, kind of read these words and first heard these words preached to me, they hit me hard, blew my mind, because it was a concept that I never, ever considered might be the right way to act ever in my life. And I hear this verse quoted all the time in Christians. Don't worry, we'll get there. I hear this stuff quoted all the time with Christians. And and it's like just glossed over like it's no big deal. And I'm thinking to myself, like, the implications of this thing are huge. Listen, it's going to blow your mind. And so I say that hoping (laughs) that I'm wrong. But in any case... The, the verse we're going to read today has that sort of effect that if you really listen to the implications and look at it from, don't, don't let it just sort of cast away. Don't let it just sort of fade into the white noise in the background. Listen to the words that we're talking about today because if you take them to heart, they might just change the entire way you see how the world works. So a little bit of review. We're in the sermon series we're calling Jesus Said. What we're doing is we're breaking down the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. It's preached by God himself, by Jesus. um, And you can find it in the book of Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we've been bouncing around all over the sermon, kind of picking different pieces of it, trying to kind of unpack what Jesus is saying. Remember, all this stuff Jesus is saying with his own mouth, with his own words, to his followers directly. Last week, we were talking about how everybody is made in the image of God. And how Jesus said, um, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And I tell you, don't even insult your brother um, because that's like committing murder. And we talked about how that's because of this idea of we are all made in the image of God and therefore we are all due honor and respect and grace. We're supposed to be treated with this level of respect and honor 
as image bearers of God. Whether we realize that or not, we have to treat others in the same way. And so by giving people that honor, we can't even insult them. That's just like murdering them. That's demoting them. That's putting them down. We talked about how God calls us to reconcile with one another, uh, to never demote someone from this image bearer idea, to always give them the highest honorific, to always treat them with love and grace, and how it's important that we reconcile our broken relationships when we come to God, that we need to reconcile those relationships and then come to the Father. Today is kind of a part two of that sermon, because last week we talked mainly about how to anger, how to, what, what do we do when someone has wronged us, or sorry, what do we do if we're the aggressor and we need to um, uh, uh, love others and we need to be the one acting to reconcile? But what about when getting along becomes difficult? Today we're going to look at what, what, what does it mean, what does it mean, what does it look like when we are the ones who feel wronged? If everyone is an image bearer, if everyone bears this image of Christ, if everyone bears this image of God, and we are called to treat every single human being on the planet with this love and respect and this honor that they deserve as image bearers of God, what do we do when we're the victim of an attack? What do we do when we're the victim of disrespect or even theft? How do we respond when we're attacked? How do we respond when we're the victim if we're supposed to treat everybody with this image of God? What does Jesus say about honoring others when they fail to honor you? So we're going to jump right into the text. Matthew 5, verse 38. This is Jesus talking. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you across the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Do not resist an evil person. You know, we, we hear this all the time, you know, turn the other cheek. It's a common little phrase we say in as Western Christians, you hear it all the time, but have you ever stopped to really think about the implications, what that means? 15-year-old me, this is the first time I heard it, and I'm just like, holy cow, I need to turn the other cheek. I need to give people more than they ask for. Does that mean if somebody's mugging me and they steal my wallet, do I have to give them my keys too? This is hard. This is really hard to deal with because this is not how we're trained to think. We're not ever trained to be able to meet anger or violence or power with meekness. It's not how I'm wired. Chances are it's not how you're wired either. It's human to want to fight back. And my gut reaction when I'm reading this, when I'm hearing this, I had it when I was 15 and I still have it to this day, 
Is God asking me to be a doormat? Because that's what I hear. Someone wants to punch me? Someone punches me across the face? I'm supposed to turn and give them the other side of my face to punch too? I don't like that. I don't like that at all. But that seems to be pretty clear what Jesus is saying. And I've had a hard time struggling with that ever since. Writer Michael Hidalgo, he writes, uh, he's a Christian writer, writes for a lot of different publications, and he also wrote this in uh, Relevant back in 2016. There's a piece about, uh, about Christian nonviolence. I'm not really talking about nonviolence today, but this little spot right here really fits what we're talking about pretty well. And he says, this is why nonviolence is so threatening. It asks us to be willing to give up everything, all our wealth, power, possessions, and influence that lend us a sense of self-worth and security and certainty. Maybe that's why we get so angry at the suggestion of nonviolence, because we are terrified of losing what we have worked so hard to get. See, the power dynamics of mercy and grace, they, they really throw everything on its head, and it's not the way that the world tends to work. It's not the way that I intrinsically work. The implications of this verse, the implications of this teaching, cause me to completely rethink a whole bunch of the interactions that I have with other human beings. Just think about what Hidalgo said here. Where does your value come from? Where does your value come from? Where does your sense of self, your sense of self-worth, your personhood, where does this come from? All right, if it comes from stuff, if you get your sense of value from stuff, from prestige, from power, from influence, then yeah, yeah, meeting evil with grace is really, really threatening because in doing so, you risk everything that makes you you. And so it's easy for us to say, no, 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 my, my sense of self is not based on stuff. My sense of self is not based on prestige. But if your value truly does come from Jesus, if your sense of self truly does come from Jesus for his love for you, for your, from your intrinsic value as a child of God, from the amazing value you have merely as a created human being, created in the image of the Most High God, if that is your sense of value, if that's where your sense of identity comes from, then nothing, nothing that could ever be done to you could ever strip you of any sense of worth. So if you're like me, and you respond to this idea of turn the other cheek and its implications, like it's threatening, that's a gut check moment. At least it is for me. How much of my self-worth is built on the idea of prestige and power and stuff? And how much of it is built on Jesus? Because if it was truly built on Jesus, if it was truly built entirely on this idea that I'm a child of God, Ain't nothing this world can do to me. And ain't nothing gonna scare me.
when you live in this reality, the reality that you are God's, it's easy to see how powerful this Christian identity can be. Because the world doesn't act like this. The world does not act like this. The world beats power for power. The world meets violence for violence. You're going to do something to me, I'm going to do something to you. That's the way that it works. And so for you to not respond that way, and not only respond in peace, but respond joyfully in peace, fearlessly in peace, that stands out. It's a neon sign above your head saying, hey, this one's different. That is way more powerful. Way more powerful. It sure doesn't feel like it in the minute. I know. <laughs> it sure doesn't feel like it in the minute. You know, someone is going to hit me. I, I, I might be able to hold my fist back and not hit them back, but yeah, I'm probably going to be yelling. But Jesus is saying, no, don't even do that. Smile. Turn the other cheek. Moving on here, verse 43, Jesus continues, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, child of God. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? In other words, he's saying, if you love those who love you, that's easy. Everybody does that. Don't pat yourself on the back. Verse 47, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't the pagans do that? Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect? Normally, when I read stuff like this, I justify, it. I justify my own actions by saying, yeah, but that's Jesus, and Jesus is perfect. He's, he's God. Like, he can do so much better than me. Of course he's going to do the good thing. I can't ever reach to that thing, so I need to be happy here. No, no, no. God's saying you can't justify that. I don't care if you think it's impossible to be perfect. Perfect is what you're striving for. Every time you miss that boat, every time you miss that target, you've missed. Strive to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, I don't get to justify my own shortcomings. That's hard. <laughs> Love our enemies is one of those things that we say, but when you're actually in the moment and, and asked to do it, it's really, really hard. Love ISIS Love terrorists? Love home invaders? Love the guy who punched you in the face? That's hard. Paul explains this better than I ever could in Romans 12. It's not going to be on the, on the screen, but I'll read it here. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people with low position. Do not be conceited. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. I love this verse right here. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. In other words, conflict is going to happen. But if you're following Jesus... You're doing everything you can to not only prevent it, but to fix it. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Every single person is created in this image of God. Every single person is created intrinsically with this value that comes from the amazing power and and authority of God. That means every single person is an image bearer. And that means even your enemies are image bearers. Even those who wish to harm you bear the image of God even if they haven't realized it yet. Everyone, every single human being, even the ones who are actively persecuting you, is a potential brother or sister in faith. This is this idea of radical mercy. This idea of radical mercy that Jesus embodied. See, we, we are Jesus followers. That's what the word Christian means. It means Jesus follower, the one who follows Christ. So as Jesus followers, we follow his teachings. We also strive to, to live like he lived, to, to walk the path that he walked. We try to embody Jesus in everything that we do. Okay? How did Jesus love his persecutors? How did he love those who hurt him? He died. You see, grace doesn't require someone to earn it. Romans uh, chapter 5 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Grace was given to us while we were still sinners. Jesus didn't require us to get better before offering grace. Jesus didn't require us to get healthy before healing us. Jesus didn't require his persecutors to repent. Jesus didn't require his persecutors while they're nailing his hands to a cross, he's forgiving them. While he's hung from the cross, he says, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Jesus died for me without requiring me to realize 
what he's giving me. I did nothing to earn this grace. Nothing. No messes, no, no, no achievements, no nothing could hold me back because God loves me so much that he died for me and he doesn't ask anything in return. He just asks me to accept that and to follow him and to let that reality change me. That's the offer he makes to you. That's the offer he makes to all of us. He died for you. He paid your price so that you could be welcome home without any worry of your past sin, your past mistakes, your past troubles. Your past messes don't matter. God loves you now. So if we did nothing to earn this grace, how could we ever require someone else to earn the grace that we offer them? If we are going to love like Jesus, to sacrificially love people while they themselves are still sinners just like us, that means we have to assume the best intentions. Even when we don't believe they have the best intentions in mind, we have to assume the best intentions. And two, we have to immediately offer grace. If someone acts against you, you immediately respond with forgiveness and grace. Now, I gotta pause for a second and put a note here. There is a huge difference between radical mercy and knowing self-destruction. Okay? Radical mercy says that we meet an attack with forgiveness and violence. It doesn't mean that we keep going back and submitting ourselves to that attack. All right, so what does this mean, Josh? What are you trying to say? I'm just going to be blunt. If you're in an abusive situation, if you're in an abusive situation, I am not telling you that you need to just suck it up and continue to forgive this person. You need to forgive them but you also need to get away from the abusive situation. All right, this verse is not telling you that you need to, compl- you need to continue walking in to that abusive situation over and over and over again. What this verse is saying is that you cannot respond to violence with violence. You cannot respond to anger with anger. You cannot respond to being wronged by wronging somebody else in return. Running away is perfectly acceptable. Okay? Back to our regularly scheduled program. So what does this look like when we live it out? What does it look like for us? We need to see those who who wrong us. We need to see them as people. Not as statistics. Not as characters, not as bad guys. We need to see them as people, as image bearers, as people who have bared the image of Christ, who are created in God's image. We need to see them as people and therefore worthy of grace, worthy of love, worthy of respect, and worthy of forgiveness, even the ones that we do not get along with, especially the ones we don't get along with. Because as Paul said, as Jesus said, Loving those who love you, that's easy. (laughs) We're called to go beyond that and love people who hate us. What would this look like if we lived it out? If the Christian world actually embraced this idea of loving our enemies, loving those who persecute us, of meeting every single aggression with love, what would this actually look like? 
And I'll be honest, I'm still struggling with this, okay? Uh, I'm 38 now, and I first started struggling with this verse when I was 15. So you do the math. I don't know, I'm a pastor. I don't do math very well. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, like, I still struggle with this. I still struggle with this because I'm still a human being who, if you're going to wrong me, I want to wrong you back. That's, that's my intrinsic DNA. That's what I want to act on. And I have to constantly be asking God to redeem myself and to give me his eyes to see people the way that he sees them so that I don't respond that way. And I'm constantly trying to figure out what... What action is justified and what action, like what would Jesus do is a constant thing. I, I'm constantly struggling with this verse. But that's okay. If you're like me, if you're struggling with this, that's okay. That's okay. What we do need to understand is we need to run towards Jesus. We need to run towards Jesus. And at the end of the day, we have to really look at why is this idea threatening to us as human beings? Is it threatening to us because our identity is wrapped up in the stuff we've gained in our personal security? Because if it is, that should be a gut check that we need to come back and focus on our relationship with Jesus. That's where I'm at. I'm threatened by this. I'm absolutely, I'm not going to pretend not to be. But it's the reality. God calls us to love like he does. And he loved us by literally dying. By sacrificing everything. By sacrificing his position in heaven. By sacrificing his power. He could have snapped his fingers and ended the entire crucifixion, crucifixion in a heartbeat. He could have snapped his fingers and had an entirely new kingdom on earth. Instead, he forgave people that were putting nails in his hands and he forgave them while they were killing him. And they didn't even know it. And he still forgave them. That is the sacrificial love that we are called to embody. And I fully admit that that is terrifying. <laughs> okay? But what would this look like if the world acted this way? What would it do to our town? What would it do to our state? What would it do to our world if Christians everywhere acted in love in this way? If we actually responded in grace to everything and didn't get into shouting matches and didn't fight each other and didn't yell? What sort of big neon sign would be above us as a church if we were, instead of being defined as this political position or that political position, we were instead defined by this joyful love that could never be shaken no matter what you do to us. We'll be worshiping Jesus and loving people that would reach farther than anything else I can imagine. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Let's pray. Dear God, I confess that I'm still broken. I'm still a flawed human being. I struggle with this verse and its implications. Loving my enemies is hard. So God, I pray that you, you give me your eyes to see. You give me your heart. That I could, I could feel what you feel and understand people the way you understand them. I want to love like you love. Probably more aptly put, I want to want to love like you love.
this is hard. And so God, I just, I pray that you empower each and every one of us to be able to step forward from this place to live in grace with one another, but also to those who would do us wrong and do us harm. I pray that Whiting Christian Church in years to come is known as a beacon of grace and forgiveness and love despite all odds, not as a place of judgment, but rather as a place of healing, as a place of love, so much joyful love that no matter what the situation, you can be welcome here. You can be welcome here and struggle right alongside us. And we can go change the world through this radical mercy and radical grace. God, you are amazing, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.